Thank you, Lucy. Okay. Let's have a word of prayer before we open God's word together. Father, we just thank you for your truth, Lord, which is true in all times and to all peoples. The gospel that was given so long ago still saves, transforms, and brings new life where there was lostness and darkness and hopelessness and death. We're just so thankful for that. We thank you for the great truths of the gospel. And we just uh, appreciate, Father, that you are a God who loves sinners. In the name of our Savior that you provided for us, we pray. Amen. Well, maybe the greatest need of the human heart everywhere, whether individuals are conscious of it or not, is to have some kind of certainty, some kind of word from God to know what's real. And in spite of our sin and rebellion, our hearts still long for some kind of certainty, and our sin makes us want to look for that certainty in all kinds of other places. We do want to know, but that longing in us combined with sin, uh, which a rebellious disposition, sends many people off in long, fruitless searches after truth of one kind or another, or experiences of one kind or another, or philosophies, or religion, or you name it. Uh, you go to a place like China where they, uh, atheism is the official you know, religion of the land, and people are hungry, hungry for something that's sure and lasting and real, and that's why the gospel is just exploding. And yeah, I was talking to all the translators I have, all became Christians in college. And, uh, and I said, what's it like at a university? And they said, evangelism goes on all the time, student to student, all the time. And uh, they can't keep up with them. I mean, it's just, it's just very exciting. So there's a, an infinite variety of man-made religions, of course. But, but there are times, because God is a God of compassion and a God of redemption, that in the midst of all of man's groping, the light will shine. And God will speak directly and certainly and truly. And last time we saw, long ago, 2,000 years ago, when a message came to a certain priest named Zecharias, he couldn't believe it, uh, even though an angel was standing there giving it to him. Uh, and, and though in his heart he was confident that God had spoken in the past, he was a believer. The believing people in Israel had certainty that God had spoken to them in ages past through their prophets. God had acted on their behalf wondrously in the great exodus and in different times throughout their history. But the silence had been long. The silence had been long. The days of miracles were past. The days of prophets were known only by their writings, not from personal experience. But despite the silence, there was a, a glimmer even in those writings of expectation. So the prophets of old, those who were the proven ones, not only prophesied God's word to their own time, but they predicted the future. And looking forward in time, they saw a redeemer, a messiah. They saw a redeemed nation, Israel, those who still believed in the days of Zechariah, and Zechariah was one of them, still believed that it would come someday, the kingdom of God, the rule of God, the reign of the Messiah. And one of the resounding passages pointing to that day is Isaiah chapter 40, um, starting at verse 3, where it says, A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert 
a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass. And its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. So verses 3 through 5 there say, prepare for the coming of the Lord. And the emphasis is on Serious preparation. Get ready. The day of visitation will come. Now, ladies, I know you all understand the whole visitation thing. It's like when the family gets together or the church group's going to meet at your house or this fill-in-the-blank person or group is going to come. You prepare, right? I mean, the whole house has to be perfect. So you say, I'm sorry. It has to be perfect so you can say, I'm sorry my place is in such a mess. But, you know, that kind of of a thing. And in the working world, you guys know, it's like you're out there and your cubicle is like this disaster, but you know that the CEO is coming and he's going to be like walking through your area or something like that. You know, you start to put golf magazine under the table and you bring out some business journals or some kind of work or something, you know, and you kind of organize it neatly so everything kind of looks nice and that kind of stuff. The weak old coffee cups kind of get tossed out finally and um, all of that. In the political world, you know, when a head of state comes to visit, you know, if a little minion comes over here to visit, then they're like, yeah, you come over here, we'll talk in this office. But when the head of state comes, you know, the Marines are out, the band's out, the red carpet and the whole, they have guys wearing 200-year-old Revolutionary War costumes go marching down this Pennsylvania Avenue, all this stuff, and all these big things happen. So people get ready when uh, things are happening. An important visit requires preparation, right? And the amount of preparation is relative to the importance of the visitor and the occasion. Well, in this text, God is the visitor. How do you prepare for that? Would you just say, oh, well, I'm glad the Lord's coming over this afternoon. Yeah, pick up the newspapers and just put them over. I mean, uh, how do you get ready when God is coming? Isaiah uses language befitting the arrival of an incredible king, a world emperor. The road he travels is going to be put in perfect condition. The ruts are going to be filled in. The holes plugged. The... uh, Eroded paths smoothed out. Valleys are going to be raised and filled in and mountains are going to be shaved down to make it smoother for him. Now what's he referring to? When he uses all that kind of language, what's he talking about? He's talking about us, our hearts, our spiritual condition. Smoothing the road is a metaphor. God is coming to dwell with you. Are your ethics marred by erosion? Is your duty to the law full of potholes? Will God have an easy journey when He comes, a celebration, or will He have to come angrily with wrath? 
a voice will call and announce the visitation. A chance will be given to get things in order, Isaiah says. And this voice remains unnamed until we get to the last prophet of the Bible, which, uh, the Old Testament, which is Malachi. And you might want to turn there real quick. Right before Matthew is Malachi. Last guy in the Old Testament. Go to chapter 3. <coughs> now Malachi prophesied in the time of Nehemiah. And the conditions of that time were that the Restoration of the temple services had been completed finally. The city of Jerusalem was in an uneasy peace. The people were already getting spiritually lazy. And Malachi's message is you are abusing the unchanging love that God has for you. You're abusing it. You you don't seem to care. So chapter 3 begins with a warning. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So notice the elements here. God is speaking and he says, the Lord of hosts. The preparer is a messenger that will clear the way before him, before me, he says. Who's coming? God himself is coming. But first the messenger. The Lord whom you seek is the Messiah. Will suddenly come to his temple. Well, whose temple is it? It's the Lord's temple. And who's the Lord? The Messiah. So the Lord must be God. It's God's temple. And the Messiah must be God. I mean, it's really right there if you're thinking about what the text says. The messenger of the covenant, again, the Messiah, who initiates the new covenant, which is promised by Jeremiah, and fulfills the old covenant, Look at chapter 4 of Malachi. Behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. You know what chaff is, right? When you break down wheat or corn or something, it's that useless stuff, that light, light stuff that kind of covered the stalks and everything, and it just blows away. It's just useless stuff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze. You burn the chaff says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. And you will tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses. My servant, even the statutes and the ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So the prophet is speaking here of apocalyptic events, the destruction of the wicked, the exaltation of the righteous. Verse 2 is a beautiful expression of the joy of the righteous. So remember the law of Moses, he says. And then he gives the prophecy, the voice, the messenger. And here he receives a specific name. I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. That's the designation given, Elijah. And now you know why there's so much talk about Elijah in the New Testament. Because that's what they were waiting for. And his work of restoration is discussed in verse 6 as well as this profound warning. If he's not listened to, 
says he will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. And that's how, that's the last word. That's how the Old Testament comes to an end. That's God's final word for 400 years. So the coming one will not be an ordinary prophet. For one thing, he himself is prophesied. That's very unusual. You know, there's no prophecies telling you that Isaiah is going to come along or Jeremiah is going to come along or uh, Daniel is going to come along. But this one is special. He is named. There's a prophecy about the prophet. He will be the inaugurating sign of the great work of God himself in establishing the kingdom. His ministry will be highly significant. It will impact many, many people. So, well, who is this guy? Well, let's look at Luke chapter 1, which is our real text for today. Verse 13, and see if we can find out from here. Now, as we discussed at some length last time, after Malachi, God does not directly speak to the nation of Israel for 400 years. But as Zacharias, this uh, aging priest, offers incense in the temple, the holy place, about 6 B.C., this breakthrough occurs. God speaks. Gabriel appears and prophesies the birth of a child for Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth, who are childless and past the years of childbearing. So let's look at Gabriel's words and see just how the heavenly visitor expresses the future of Zacharias' son, who we know will be John the Baptist. And we're going to look at John's unique qualities and then his unique role in establishing the kingdom. First, his qualities. Verse 13, the angel said, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your petition has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. So verse 14 says he will be the cause of joy for many people. Not only his parents will be joyful, but many will rejoice because of his life. Many will rejoice at his birth. Wouldn't that be a great thing to have said about you? (laughs) Many people will rejoice at your birth. I had three Chinese people sing happy birthday to me, but that's not quite the same thing as uh, having many people rejoice at your birth. God's people still present in Israel will marvel and rejoice that a true prophet has come. These people will long to hear John's words. They will accept his exhortations, pattern their lives on his teaching, root out the sins that he condemns and points out in their lives. And they will be ready. They'll be ready when Christ comes. So they're happy people, happy in the Lord. Then secondly, it says, verse 15, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Greatness will characterize this man. Now that's real greatness. If God says you're great, then you're great. He will be full of faith. He will be great in love, great in obedience, great in prophetic power, and great in humility, as we will see. John, the Baptist, will be a man who does what he has been told. When it's time for him to give up his truly national ministry, a vast ministry, so that the attention will go to Christ, he gives it up gladly. He says, he must increase and I must decrease, right? Because he knew what his job was and he was totally committed to it. 
He was bold. Even to kings, he preached the same high standards as to everyone else. Repent. Eventually leading to prison for him and to death. Third, he will be characterized by abstinence. Uh, Verse 15 says he will drink no wine or liquor. John practiced careful self-denial. He was a teetotaler, if they drank tea. A water totaler. Can you say that? An H2O totaler. This is a special kind of self-denial. And the point is not that it's a sin to touch in a moderate way any kind of alcohol. The Jews drank um, you know, wine normally. Jesus drank the wine of his day, which was pretty mixed down with water, but it was real alcohol in there somewhere. And John's mission was a call for repentance. So, it, so based on his mission, it was a time to focus on self-denial. We were preparing for joy. We're preparing for the king to come. But you know what? You don't have a big party and pass the drinks around when you're preparing for the CEO to come or the president or the emperor. You're getting ready. When he gets there, and if he's happy, it's a party. So John's life characterized this self-denial and preparation mode. The party hasn't started yet. Preparation is the keynote of his ministry. So Jesus, Jesus accepted um, some types of uh, drink, fermented drink, because he was the king. And the very presence of the Messiah was a cause for celebration. So it was fitting. In Numbers chapter 6, there are listed several means of devotion to God that people can take voluntarily uh, for a time, sort of a special dedication, and it was called a Nazarite vow. And one aspect of that vow was no drinking of any kind. In fact, you couldn't even eat grapes, you know, like a cluster of grapes and even, because nothing having to do with grapes. You just deny yourself that. The Nazarite vow was temporary, but John's would, John would practice this mode of self-denial for his entire life. That's what he did. That's how he lived. And that's different than anything God had ordinarily asked of volunteers for this kind of self-denial. Fourth thing, he will be spirit-controlled. Verse 15 says he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while in his mother's womb. That's pretty amazing. So he won't drink. He'll be filled with the Spirit of God. And that, of course, is not the only text to contrast alcohol with being spirit-filled. You know, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, right? So John's life is one of influence by the Spirit of God. He is um, driving under the influence of the Spirit, if you will, not of wine. And then Gabriel goes on, yet while in his mother's womb there, he says, while in his mother's womb he'll be filled. That's just a a fantastic phrase. It's pregnant with meaning. (laughs) Oh, come on. We'll discuss it a little bit more uh, later in this chapter. But as a side note, this passage unequivocally supports the idea that a a fetus in the womb has a soul. Uh, It's pretty hard to escape that from this text. And if it's capable of being acted upon by God in a spiritual way in the womb, there's a soul there. What would have been the crime had John the Baptist been aborted? Kind of hard to even think about that. So anyway, here we have him in his unique qualities. He's a cause of joy. He will possess greatness in the eyes of God. He will practice self-control in uh, very extreme ways. And he'll be unique 
in the influence of the Holy Spirit in his life. So John was a special man, called of God, sold out for God, and I hope we can appreciate his many character qualities, boldness and faith and obedience and humility, self-control, single-mindedness, and in God's kingdom, those are all marks of greatness. And let's talk about his unique role here now. Verse 16, he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So verse 16 talks about restoration. Restoration. There's kind of a pattern here. Restore, prepare. Restore, prepare. And the restoring, I I just love this. He will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord. Many he will turn back. John's life and preaching would absolutely hit their mark. Indeed, a number of Jesus' followers were first disciples of John, uh, even the apostles, some of them. We know Andrew was, and probably almost certainly John was too. Now, turning people back to the Lord is a classic function of a prophet. You could just think of a number of texts. Ezekiel 3.19, if you, have, if you have warned the wicked and if he does not turn from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity. That's what he, God says to Ezekiel. Isaiah 55.7, let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. So the prophet seeks always to turn people back to God's way. It's a big job for John because 400 years have passed since there's been a ministry like that with prophetic power. But Gabriel assures us, assures Zechariah, that a good measure of success would follow John's ministry. Then the preparation, verse 17, it is he who will go before him, before him the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So there's Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6 right there. John is Elijah-like, a preparer of the way. Whose way? Him. Before him. Who's him? Well, the immediate antecedent here is the Lord God, the Lord their God. He's preparing the way for God's visitation, just as Malachi proclaimed. So God's visitation would be in the only begotten, God the Son incarnate, made flesh. So Malachi's prophecy, like so many Old Testament prophecies, has a sort of a dual application. Now, Old Testament prophecies see the Christ event as one. In other words, the one thing missing in the Old Testament is a clear explanation that Christ will come twice. So very often, in the same text, you'll have aspects of the first coming of Christ and aspects of the second coming of Christ Together. In fact, we'll see later in Luke when Jesus is in the synagogue and he reads one of those prophetic texts from Isaiah. He actually goes right up to the first coming text, part of the text, and then he stops in the middle of the verse because the the rest of it is about the second coming and he's not doing that yet. So he stops right there and then he says, today this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, if you just read Isaiah straight, you would think the whole thing was happening. But we know, hindsight, right, and from the scripture, that two comings... And that solves a lot of Old Testament problems because the Old Testament clearly teaches that Messiah will suffer and die and it clearly teaches that he will reign forever. So that was a, that was a problem even back then for the rabbis. Now, how does that work? Die, reign forever? 
uh, we know it means resurrection, ascension, return. But Malachi chapter 4 is apocalyptic, the great and terrible day of the Lord it's talking about. A day still future, that's the second coming. But there's clearly application to Christ's day. Indeed, had Israel as a nation embraced Christ, that would have been the day of judgment. But they did not recognize the day of their visitation. And of course, God knew all that. So it was all laid out long before it ever happened. But the first coming was a time of sifting the righteous and the wicked, the true believer and the phony believer. A terrible day indeed was ahead. Having rejected Christ, the Jewish nation was in perpetual turmoil until just a generation after Jesus, less than 40 years later, when the nation was wiped off the face of the earth by the iron hand of Rome. Never in its history had the destruction been so complete. Not even the Babylonian captivity could rival what Rome did to the nation of Israel. And the Jews wandered ever since until the 20th century. And that was just a glimpse of what was to come. So was John Elijah or not? That's one of those big questions. Well, look at John chapter 1 real quick. I'm going to kind of run it down for you in the little bit of time we have left. John chapter 1, verse 19 John was so special that a lot of people thought he was. Verse 19, this is the witness of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem. You know when you get that kind of attention? The big boys in Jerusalem are sending people out to talk to you? Things are going well? They said, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, and he confessed, I am not the Christ. He's not the Messiah. They said, what then? Are you Elijah? because they knew who that Elijah was. They knew Malachi. He said, I am not. Are you the prophet then? Because Moses spoke of the prophet who was to come like him, a great lawgiver like Christ would be. No. They said, then who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you, living, stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Are you Elijah? No. Now turn to Matthew chapter 11. Verse 7. As these were going away, Jesus began to speak to the multitudes about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. Why did you go out? To see a prophet? Yes. Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. 
That's an exact quote of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you care to accept it, he himself is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, John said he wasn't. Jesus said he was. Is that a contradiction? No, and I think the key is verse 14 there. If you care to accept it. Understanding that God is sovereign and Christ had to be rejected and killed in order to fulfill the scriptures and the plan of God, still the offer was made. And had Christ been accepted, John would have been the Elijah prophesied by Malachi. Look at Matthew chapter 17. Verse 10. His disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? That's a good question. He answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. So he was Elijah, but there is to come an Elijah. John's dead at this point. There is to come an Elijah. So how does that work together? Well, if they'd accepted, he would have been Elijah. Since they rejected, there will be an Elijah. You see? So when John said, no, I'm not Elijah, he said, I am not personally Elijah. Elijah died a long time ago. I am not him. Had they accepted Christ, he would have fulfilled that Elijah promise, which Malachi said would be in the, a ministry in the spirit and power of Elijah. It would be Elijah-like in, in many great ways. So John the Baptist would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And in fact, no two men in scripture are really more alike than John the Baptist and Elijah. So John restores and prepares, and that had to be done when Christ came the first time, and it will have to be done again. And there's a lot of speculation about who that is in the future. There are two prophets mentioned in Revelation who are not named, and uh, I'm not going to get into that question. But that cycle is uh, verbally repeated by Gabriel, restoration and preparation, restoration and preparation. Verse 17, back in Luke chapter 1, um, he will turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. That's restoration, and then preparation so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's what he's doing. So the restoration, I believe Gabriel means more than just you know, father and son retreats and uh, dads and sons hugging each other. I, I, I think that's included. Certainly repentance from sin should influence and affect families that are disrupted and broken apart and where there's bitterness and ill feeling and all those kind of things. Undoubtedly, a ministry of preparation includes people repenting of hatreds and bitterness. And undoubtedly, under John's ministry, when he preached across the land of Israel in the time of Christ, fathers and sons humbly embraced each other where there had been conflict before. I'm sure that happened. But I believe the fathers here 
are more focused on the departed saints of old, the faithful generations. So the restoration of the sons to the fathers is the present generation finally living like Abraham, having his faith, or the faith of Isaac, or the faith of Jacob, or men that like Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That, that's the kind of thing. We'll not deviate from the left or the right. We're going to do what God says. Th- those are the fathers they need to be reconciled to. Those who stood for righteousness, like Gideon, or those who returned from the captivity with Ezra, rather than those that enjoyed their comfortable homes in Babylon after the long captivity. So these fathers, I think, would look with abhorrence on first century Judaism and its externalism and its phoniness and the Pharisees. I think they'd be horrified by it. Faithlessness, evil, sin, half-hearted worship. And the displeasure of the fathers after John's ministry would be transformed into joy as John went forth and brought the word of God to bear on a lost generation because many lives would be changed under his preaching. God would work wonders in people. So if Jacob looked upon the people touched by John's ministry, he'd be happy. I think that's what he's saying. And you know, let's do some application. What would the fathers think of the church in America in 2007? And the fathers, I mean... The Apostles, St. Augustine, John Calvin, Martin Luther, Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley, um, Spurgeon, uh, the great preachers, the great missionaries, the great pastors, the great laymen, the great teachers. They they look at us, and I don't mean Active Faith Bible Church because I think they'd be pleased with us for the most part, but at the church at large, what would they see? What would they think about us? It's just a good question to ask. You know what I love about the National Anthem? A lot of people hate our national anthem because they can't sing it and all that. I love it. Because I don't think there's any other anthem in the world that asks a question. Other anthems are like, we are a great people, nobody can beat us, and all that kind of stuff. Our anthem asks us a question. So every time you go to a baseball game or whenever you end up singing it, and I guess that's where, you say, does the flag still wave over the land, you know, of the brave, the, the home of the brave and the land of the free? Is it still waving over that kind of a land? It's asking us, is it still that way? Are you still free? Are you still brave? That's a great question. Well, let's take that into spiritual thing. Are we still faithful as the great generations, the missions generations? You know, Robert and Heather are going off to China. There was a time when that was such a driving force that the mission pool is getting smaller and smaller from the United States. We're still the dominant country, but it's, it's going down and down and down because less and less people, less and less men are willing to go out on the mission field. It's kind of a girl's thing to do now. That's different. How are we matching with the generations? Are we theologically as committed as the reformers were to the doctrine of justification by faith, to the sovereignty of God, to the absolute sufficiency of Christ for all things? Do we trust the Bible to be wise and draw our counseling from God's word or are we just bringing in, are we, are we dependent on Freud? What did people do before Freud? Could, could your problems be solved? Your personal living problems, could they be solved before psychology? I'm just, I'm just curious if they could have been. Is, is God strong enough? Is the word sufficient enough before we got all these deep insights? I don't know what they would think of this. I have my guesses, though. And they had their problems in their days, but one can never cease progressing in the things of the Lord. Our fathers, and I mean our spiritual fathers, inspire me to do better, to be more faithful. 
are we up to them? You know, I think, I think that's what they're talking about here. And we have the same challenge. Is the way clear for God to operate with ease in your life? Or are there rough roads he has to transgress and deep valleys and high mountains he has to deal with when it comes to you? Are you prepared for him? Or are you making it difficult for him? John the Baptist's goal is to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That was his goal. Are you putting obstacles in the path of the Holy Spirit as he tries to work in your life? Or are you saying, how can I make myself more prepared for God to work in me? How can I make it easy for him? Do I expose myself to this Word, which the Bible says the Word is the sword of the Spirit, do I open myself to it? Do I want to hear it? Do I read it? Do I let it cut? Do I let it challenge me? Am I willing to put away my attitudes and my bitterness and my prejudices and all those things that have to be challenged by... Am I willing to do that? Or am I just going to do my religion thing and just... uh, Just keep your distance, Lord. Or am I going to prepare my heart... The right answer to that question can open doors to a whole new dimension of what it means to know the Lord. One of the most amazing verses in the whole Bible, we were there earlier, Matthew 11.11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. What does that mean? What does that mean? He who was least in the kingdom is greater than John when John was the greatest man that ever lived in the eyes of Jesus. It has to mean this, because I look at myself, (laughs) there's no other way I can explain it. We have so much more available to us than he did. We have Christ. He was dead before the crucifixion, John the Baptist. He He didn't see that. He didn't see the ministry of Jesus in its fullness. We have Christ to know all about Him. We have the cross as an anchor. We have Christ as a model. Christ as a Savior. We have Christ as an intercessor. He prays for us. John was really, in every sense, an Old Testament saint. As great as he was. And we have, we possess, what he introduced, what he predicted, what he called for preparation for. And he pointed to Christ's coming. And we point to Christ having come, his work at Calvary and his life in us is greater than anything John could have experienced. There's so much more the least of us can point to than John could. That's just staggering. And that so much more idea really begins in the passage that we're going to look at next week. Because six months after Gabriel's appearance, he shows up again. And this time he speaks to a a young girl named Mary. And that's when the fullness begins. Let's pray. Father, help us to appreciate who we have as a Savior and the gifts we have in Christ and the great reality of the indwelling Holy Spirit which apparently the Old Testament saints did not have in exactly the same way. We have so much, so much. 
Father, I pray, pray that you would help us every day to be prepared to meet with you, to hear from you, to be challenged by you, to be directed by you, by what we know to be true and by what you would prompt us to do, Father. We just thank you and we give you great glory for your word. It is precious. We pray in the name of your Son, our, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.